people in Florida march for gun legislation as lawmakers haven't budged. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. More than four years ago now, students from Marjory Stoneman Douglas launched the March for Our Lives movement. It helped change some of the gun laws in Florida. Some of those students were back this weekend marching for national change on guns in light of numerous mass shootings. Also, in Florida, the state can intervene if a community can't control its finances. North Miami was one example of a city struggling. We'll meet the city manager who was able to turn a deficit into a surplus in just a couple of years. And finally, we'll introduce you to a Jamaican LGBTQ advocate who wants to use art to open people to more perspectives on identity. All of that today on Sundial, after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for joining us. The first march happened more than four years ago. Enough is enough. Enough is enough. People gathered in Parkland and shouted, enough is enough, as the students that started the March for Our Lives movement demanded politicians act on gun control measures. They were prompted by the death of their classmates and faculty at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in 2018. Well, now, after the murders of 19 children and two teachers in Uvalde, Texas, and the string of other recent mass shootings in the United States, the March for Our Lives movement in Parkland took to the pavement, and students, parents, and teachers felt the need to rally once again against gun violence. WLRN education reporter Kate Payne and WLRN Broward County reporter Gerard Albert III were at this past weekend's march, and they join us now to open up this reporter's notebook. Uh, I really appreciate both of you being here and sharing what happened. Ger- Gerard, what was the atmosphere like? How would you describe you know, how many people were there what, and what was happening? There were about 1,500 people there. Um, the speakers were on the stage, um, kind of voicing their frustration, voicing their thoughts to the crowd. Mostly everybody had a sign. Um, and, and, and it was, it was passionate. Um, and, and people were, people were frustrated. You were there at the 2018 in 2018, right? I was, I what, covered it, uh, for a college class. Yeah. What, I mean, what, tell me like what you saw then to today, what's changed or is it the same thing? I think the biggest difference, I mean, the size was different. The, the passion was a little bit different because it had just happened the month before in Parkland. So in the same city, in, within miles of the school, this time it, it wasn't, it was a little more short notice. Um, so there wasn't, as, weren't as many people, but I think the biggest difference was that then it was just frustration and sadness and emotion and just a plea to do something, anything, please. Now these four years later, after March for Our Lives was founded, after they've held these marches, now they have a more accurate checklist, if you will, of of what they want to see happen in government. It was more pointed. It was more direct. This is what we want to see happen. This is what will work. This is what we want. Before it was just, please do something, do anything. By the way, did you see any of the faces that you remember from 2018? A couple people were there, and I, I spoke to a, a couple former students as well uh, who were who survived the shooting. Kate, you were there as well. Um, was t- tell me a little bit more about the theme because, as as Gerard was saying, that it seemed more pointed. But 
what did you get the sense of what the mission of the day was for them? How did they feel that, you know, what they wanted to say and do, you know, on this particular weekend? What really stood out to me was the anger and the frustration and the heartbreak. That was was the feeling that I got from the speakers and the folks who came uh, on Saturday. You know, Parkland, the, the survivors there, they know in such a horrifically intimate way the toll that gun violence takes in this country. And for them to have to come back to Pine Trails Park again, you know, this place that they've returned to again and again over the years to protest um, and have to reckon with once again, you know, there's been another horrific shooting at a school uh, in, in Uvalde, Texas, a shooting that is so horrifically familiar to what we saw at Sandy Hook just years before and, and having to reckon with the reality that what the survivors in Parkland have gone through, what survivors in Sandy Hook and now Uvalde have gone through, uh, reckoning with the reality that it doesn't seem to be enough to get the action that they want from lawmakers. You spoke to a number of people. One of them, and I want to make sure I'm saying this, is Zoe Weisman or Zoe Weisman? Mm-hmm. Zoe Weisman. Yeah, tell yeah. me a little bit about her. Yeah, so she's 16 years old, and she's the director of March for Our Lives Parkland chapter. And she was in sixth grade when the shooting happened, and she was right next door at Westglades Middle School. And uh, she talked about her experience that day and uh, being outside working on a a school project when uh, the shooting happened and and the terror of that day. And she was still is is traumatized by by what happened. You know, she's haunted by, uh, talked about being haunted by these nightmares and, and flashbacks and, you know, loud noises sending her into a panic and having to leave school because she was so um, overwhelmed leaving school early. Um, Another person you talked to was a Sari Kaufman uh, who spoke at the rally, and she she was also a sophomore at Stoneman Douglas, right? She was a sophomore at Stoneman Douglas when the shooting happened. Let's, yeah. let's hear a little bit of her speech. So as I was looking back last night at the speech I gave in 2018 on the same stage, I kept asking myself, Was there something more I could have said? Was there anything we could have done differently to bring about change? In my 2018 speech, I even said, I believe in you, America, that this time will be different because our words will turn into real action. Please do not let me and my classmates down. But four years later, do we feel let down by our elected officials? Who here is angry at our elected officials for not enacting anything on the federal level? Who here is angry that our representatives do nothing while children die in the streets and in our schools? Who here is angry that they have allowed gun violence to become the leading cause of death for children and teens in the United States? But while our elected officials have continued to let us down, you and this movement have not. It is eerie to hear this because it sounds like what I heard in 2018. So it's it's just the same thing uh, all these years later. Gerard, I mean, I'd imagine that other students you spoke with share, uh, sorry, sentiments. They do. They're angry. They're frustrated. Um, I think a lot of them are tired. The one I spoke to, that's how she ended. One of the things she told me is just repeating it. You know, 
we're we're tired of it. Uh, I think also when you see the younger activists, the David Hoggs come up, and they were so young when they started being activists, and now four years later, um, at a protest in front of Marco Rubio's office a couple weeks ago, he said he says I I shouldn't have to do this. I'm a young adult. I shouldn't be I should be enjoying college. I shouldn't be out here pushing for common sense gun laws. Again, talking uh, about the March for Our Lives, a march that happened this past weekend, talking with WLRN Broward County reporter, you just heard from Gerard Albert III, also WLRN education reporter Kate Payne. They both covered this rally in Parkland uh, that, again, was put on by the March for Our Lives gun control movement, and that was started four years ago. That movement was born by students out of anger when the shooting happened at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Uh, after the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and other recent shootings, the group felt that they have to march again. Now, you can find uh, their reporting, Kate and Gerard's reporting, on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Gerard, where is this the March for Our Lives movement putting this energy now? They're funding. What, what are their efforts? You said they're more pointed, but what are they doing? A lot of their leaders are meeting with congresspeople, trying to meet with senators. They're pushing for legislation similar to what we saw happen in Florida after Parkland. So raising the minimum wage uh, to buy an assault rifle, red flag laws. Uh, A lot of the stuff that just yesterday, the Senate uh, bipartisan group that was meeting on gun legislation preemptively kind of agreed to before putting it into law. The only difference there was there was no um, raise on the minimum age to buy assault rifles. That's still going to look like it's, it, it looks, it's looking like it's still going to be 18 and they're going to incentivize states to implement red flag laws similar to the ones that are implemented in Florida. Kate, you also spoke to some parents. Let's take a listen here. And I think what motivated me to come out here is um, last week when I was dressing them for school, um, you would never think that a dad of three-year-olds would worry about whether he's dressing them for um, their last day at school. So it's one of those really terrifying, very traumatic thoughts that Um, I think is easy to push to the back of the mind or try and get rid of. And um, that's one of the, that was like kind of the final straw. That is Josh Joseph. Tell me a little bit about him. Yeah, so he is a mental health therapist in Miami-Dade. He was there at at the rally in Parkland. He came up from Miami with some of his family members to protest and wearing signs. And um, and as he as he mentioned, he's the father of two three-year-olds. It was actually their birthday on Saturday, and um, he he just talked about the fear of sending his kids out into the world every day and just not knowing if they're going to make it home every day. And he said um, that that fear has really been um, intensified by uh, the shooting at the elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, just how young those kids were. And, you know, we, we talked about, you know, how are your kids doing? How are you doing? And he says, um, you know, he's he's trying to take a step back from, from media consumption and, and just take it one day at a time. You know, he, he doesn't know how to handle it. Does he ever, did he say anything about how to talk to the kids about what they're seeing in the news, but then also because kids have to go through these shooter drills. 
What, you know, I wonder what he said about that, if he did. Yeah, we didn't get the chance to talk about that specifically, and, and his kids are so young, you know, at age three. But in talking to other mental health experts about that, about how to talk with kids, um, the advice that, that I got from them was, you know, kids are experiencing this in schools. As you say, they're doing these, these drills. They're talking about it with their friends. And uh, experts say it's really important for parents to have these conversations with their kids kids um, to, to open up the communication and, and to address their fears, to normalize their fears and and to help them um, just talk about it and and know that there are things that they can do to protect themselves. Gerard, you remember when you covered this story before and, we, you know, the you had the students from Marjorie Stoneman, they made it to Tallahassee and they were able to push for something to change. But did anybody say anything about the fact that you got to go through politics and politicians if we're going to make any change and how they feel about that, knowing that here we are again four or five years later and nothing has really changed. I, I think they understand it. They're young, but they understand. Um, and, and like a lot of young people, I think they're getting a little jaded to politics, seeing all the mass shootings happen, seeing all the inaction. Um, it's I asked a couple of them, you know, what does it feel like to kind of just constantly come out here and act, be an activist and, and, and raise your voice and have it not really be heard? Um, and they just said that we're not going to stop. They're not going to stop. Um, I also spoke to a state rep um, from Coral Springs and I asked him the same thing. Um, you know, you pushed for this se- special session on gun laws in the state and the Republicans did not sign on. And now you can't have it, you know what now and and that was just the sentiment they're not going to stop pushing for it they're not going to give up did they say anything by the way because it, we are we are in an election year even though that hasn't ramped up yet but that you know it, the efforts to try to bring gun issues to the forefront for this election did they talk about that at all are they planning anything he didn't tell me that they were planning anything um like you said we are a bit away from election but i'm i'm undoubtedly it'll come up we do have some time before that November election, but uh, well, we could have. We're going to be picking either the current governor or a new governor, uh, and some other state lawmakers. I want to thank uh, my guest uh, again, WLR and Broward County reporter. You heard from Gerard Albert III, also our education reporter Kate Payne. Follow their reporting on this on our website WLRN.org. Gerard, Kate, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. All right, still to come, North Miami city manager has turned the city's finances around, and she did it during the pandemic. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. There were a few cities in South Florida facing serious financial challenges, big deficits. Those were exacerbated by the pandemic. And that's problematic because if a city can't get their finances in order, the state could jump in and take over. North Miami was one of those cities having challenges with their money. And then enter Teresa Thrillis. She took over as the city manager in 2020. She turned the city's finances around. She cut expenses, drastically turned the budget around from being in the red to the black. And again, during the pandemic, Teresa joins us now to tell us how she did it. Um, Teresa, first of all, congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lewis, and thank you for having me. No, definitely. And this look, this is huge because this could also be a blueprint for a lot of other cities. But, you know, you took us, let, let's go back to, you know, 2020. 
The pandemic just comes in, upended many city budgets. Why did you want this job in the first place? Um, I, I felt it was just important to, to come in and, and work on a community such as ours in North Miami. I'm originally from Miami, and I thought it was a task that could be done, and I was up for the challenge. When you took the job, you what did you know about what the situation was? Um, well, I generally knew that we were in a $14 million deficit. Um, one of the things that were that did come as a little bit more of a surprise was the the loss of revenues um, because we had a huge loss of revenues as well. Um, so a deficit is one thing. Uh, then to not have the revenues that you would initially rely on when you're cutting expenses is probably what what was different when I got there. So here you come in again. We got this, and as you said, with the pandemic, that's true. Like all of a sudden, we're all locked up at home. Businesses had to shut down. Some went out of business. A lot of money was lost for the cities, uh, you know, for their budgets. And the other thing too is, you know, you can't even talk face to face with other city employees and groups. We entered the world of Zoom meetings. I mean, that had to add an extra challenge when you're trying to solve a, a you know, multi-million dollar deficit and you can't even see people face to face. Yes, Lewis, it definitely did. Um, when I got back, that was an additional challenge to come down to North Miami, a brand new city, and to have to meet everyone virtually. Um, one, you, you're really focused on trying to gain the trust of those that you're working with when you come. And when you don't get a chance to really meet them, and everything is based on a, a Zoom meeting, it is quite challenging. Okay, so let's find out what this magic is you did. Let's start at the beginning. What was your goal? How did you begin this? My main goal was to start the path for North Miami to be stability. And so with that, the main uh, my main focus was, okay, let's look at our budget. And the first thing I did was say, where are we spending? What are we spending on? How can we reduce it? And what needs to happen next? And that was really my my number one goal. The other thing was to recognize, and I, and I had some conversations with all of the council members, that we weren't going to be able to do everything that we did before. So we were going to have to, as a, as a group, as a team, as a council and the management together, um, make some decisions to cut our expenses and understand that we couldn't do everything that we wanted to do. Did you get a full buy-in right away or was there any pushback? When I came on, I definitely had full buy-in. Uh, and I think the council really understood that we did need to move forward. But one of the most difficult parts is it's one thing to say, yes, I wanna fix the finances. It's another thing to hear a no from your city manager when there's something that you wanna do. So I think getting through those were mainly the challenging ones. It was, yeah, we have to save money, but you don't have to cut that, right? <laughs> and that was where we I, we saw challenges. Is there one in particular, and it's not to call out any particular commissioners, you don't have to mention names, but I'm just, is there one particular thing you said, we got to cut this, and then you got a lot of pushback for it? Well, interestingly enough, we had, a, a we used to have a, a Thanksgiving parade. Actually, we brought it back this year. And in COVID, we cut it and we thought we could cut it also because of the pandemic. But I will say 
that Thanksgiving parade, because it has been so long and been there for 30 years, it was extremely difficult to continue to cut that for expenses. Um, so that year, that did bring in a lot of pushback. Um, and I think the other place, too, it was very difficult to say we're going to have to um, do some layoffs and, and, and look at our and look at our personnel as well. Now, again, this is, you know, because the pandemic has stretched over a couple of years, things did start to reopen in 2021. But when did you start to see the city making money again? Um, it, it was liter- it was pretty much um, probably late uh, 2021 when things were starting to get back and we saw that some of the revenues would start to pick back up again. The property values did assist a lot um, after the pandemic with the property values uh, bouncing back. That was very helpful. We still are not seeing the levels of the revenues that we've had in the past. So it's been about really looking about what we're spending and working on our expense side more than anything. Did you have to, you talk about layoffs. Did you have to have a lot of layoffs? We kept the um, layoffs to minimal. I would say from my initial calculations and trying to work on the deficit as quickly as we could, um, we, we were able to reduce the number of layoffs uh, to about 60% less than, than we originally expected. You know, I, I, I guess, and this is an education for me because when I, you know, I'm, I don't work on city budgets, obviously, but I always tend to think of things like, well, just your basic services and making sure that, you know, trash is being picked up, streets are, are, are good and lights work and everything else. But you mentioned parade and then it hit me. I was like, oh, wait a second. That's right. Cities also put on parties. Um, when you go back to, I mean, like the Thanksgiving parade, just out of curiosity, how much does it cost to run a parade? Um, it costs quite a few dollars to run a parade. <laughs> um, you know, it, but one of the things that I think is important to mention is that in a city, one of the most important things are the events and the public spaces. Residents love to be able to go to their parks. They also want something to bring their families to. Most of your family events come from uh, your government and your city as well. That is a really interesting point. And people will get protective about it because they like those events. Yeah, I mean, this last year we um, had our Easter egg hunt and it was important. We had almost we had nearly 1200 kids out for the Easter um, event. It's a it's a huge event and it's something that the parents can bring safely, bring their kids to enjoy an event. So in in everything, you have to think about not not just us getting the trash and the water, but the quality of life very much depends on the government as well. So we help the residents enjoy what they have, their green spaces, their events, the buildings that we're building, making sure that things are there so that they have a livable and safe and fun city. Again, I'm talking with Teresa Thorella. She is the city manager for the city of North Miami. And she is widely credited with turning around the city's financial budget situation. Uh, you know, she came in and there was a big deficit. Now they're at a surplus. And she did it in a couple of years. You can learn more about this story on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Um, Teresa, how were you able to, to keep those essential services funded? Was that difficult or did you have to make some tough cuts? 
We definitely made some tough cuts, but it was important for me to make sure that we kept the essential services. Kept um, our, we, we limited our reduction in services um, very, uh, very much. Um, that was important. This was one of the years that what we did was we linked what is needed with what we were spending and making sure that we had water, we were picking up trash. There was a other couple of things that we used to do as well as we were subsidizing the cost of trash. We changed that as well to make sure that we were charging what was the appropriate amount to charge for the trash pickup. And how, how did the American Rescue Plan Act uh, help out, those dollars? How much did you get for that? So our... Um, our initial, our, our initial allocate, our total allocation is just over 19 million. And what we did with that is it did help to offset some of our revenues. But what was important for us was to make sure that we were able to use some of those dollars to help out the residents. So we continued to use some of those dollars for tenant emergency assistance, uh, for mortgage uh, assistance. We, uh, we also did some flood infrastructure design projects with that money. So my focus was work on our budget internally as much as we can to bring the expenses down and stay under the revenues. We supplemented to some extent our falling revenues with ARP dollars, but we also made sure that we were able to help ailing businesses. We gave out business grants for businesses that needed to get more technology so that they could change the way they did their work during the pandemic. And we also gave grants out to businesses who've been here in a long time that needed that help in order to survive. I mentioned at the beginning, uh, as a reminder that, you know, if if a city struggles with its finances uh, over a period of time, the state could come in and not so much that it would fix it, it would come in and take over. Uh, And so that's a fear. That's a concern. Was the city of North Miami close to that happening? We were. It was definitely a strong concern. Um, this past year, we responded. Thankfully, we were able to respond to the state that we have a positive outlook on our finances. But you are right. When uh, after a few years, the state will look at your your uh, annual financial report, and from there, they'll look at the deficiencies. We had continual deficiencies on having our expenses exceed our revenues. So the state did make an inquiry this past year, and we were able to respond to that inquiry by showing that we were moving in a positive direction. But it was definitely a strong concern. So when did it happen? When was that moment when all of a sudden you're looking at the numbers, you're looking at the figures, and you're no longer in the red? You're now in the black you now have a surplus. When did that happen? What was that like? So right at the end of, so it's interesting, at the end of last year's fiscal calendar, just before we get to October 1, it's like a race to put all the numbers together and say, how will we finish out the year? And one of the things is I knew that I couldn't just finish out the year with a balanced budget, you know, zero. I needed to have additional savings and we have additional revenues. And so for us, around, I would say, mid-September, when we were counting out those last dollars and realizing, oh, wait a minute, we're going to come in on a surplus, that was kind of the moment to exhale. 
And look, one of the other things, too, is this. You get to this point, whether it's a city, whether it's a company, if it's an individual human being, you get to the point you're out of debt and you're out of the red and in the black. But now you got to make sure you move forward intelligently. Is there a plan that's been put in place to, so that North Miami, barring uh, you know the, the economy collapsing, that it doesn't go backwards again? Yeah, we're working on that. So with this budget, we're trying to do a five-year outlook. One of you know, one is to get you outside of it, and the other is to create a sustainable financial environment where you can continue to make sure that you're able to continue that on. So that is really our next uh, challenge is to make sure that we've continued to move forward throughout the next five years. We're very positive about it. We've had some strong development projects. And with those strong development projects, we believe that those will increase our tax base. And in the future years, it would it will get even better. But we definitely are working towards a long-term financial plan. And it means that for the foreseeable future, we still have to continue to pay attention to our finances and be responsible. Uh, look, you have municipalities, that, again, still struggling since the pandemic. And here you have this success. I'd imagine a lot of people are not looking at you. But what advice do you have for other city managers and city leaders as they're trying to figure out how to right the ship? I think the first thing is really city um, city administration and the council really having understanding of their goal financially to, to right the ship. Because one of the reasons why I'm able to be successful is because even when it was tough to say no, um, I was able to do that with my council and speak with them. And we talked through what were the priorities. Um, during our retreats, we were very um, focused on figuring out what are the priorities year by year. So during the time that I was able to spend with the council to decide what are going to be the priorities, we made it very clear. What is our goal and what can we do? And if you follow those priorities throughout the year and you can say, well, remember, we were talking about this priority. We're going to have to focus on it. I think you can bring everything back. So it's really about working together, finalizing your priorities and making sure that you follow through um, with those priorities. Teresa, thank you so much for sharing this with us. And again, congratulations on the turnaround because, well, that's just a plus for the city of North Miami. Yes, it is. And we're excited to move forward. Teresa, it's always a pleasure. Great to have you here. Thank you so much, Lewis. Have a wonderful day. All right. Again, Teresa Thrillis, city manager for the city of North Miami. Again, credited with turning around the city's finances. They were in the red. $14 million deficit within a few years a $4 million plus surplus. It can be done. Learn more about this story, by the way, on our social media, WLRN Sundial. And by the way, don't forget that, you know, you can always stay in touch with us, whether you've got comments on anything that you hear or if you've got ideas of topics that you want to discuss, maybe something's going on in your community you think is really interesting. We'd love to hear from you. The best way to do it, the Sundial Text Club. Just type the word join and send it to 786 786- 677-0767. Again, that's 786-677-0767. Well, still to come, local Caribbean queer pioneers are being honored in two art exhibits in Broward.
Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. You might have noticed a little more color this time of year. Rainbow flags, banners, signs, maybe even rainbow socks. It's Pride Month, a time when the LGBTQ plus community celebrates around the country. Here in South Florida, the Caribbean queer community is honoring the pioneers of this movement here in the region. We're, joined to, we're going to discuss two exhibits that open in Broward that are at the heart of the celebration. Joining me now is G. Wright Muir. She is the co-founder and board vice president of Black LGBTQ Plus Liberation, Inc. G., welcome to the program. Welcome. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much, oh, Luis. Th- thank you. Thank you. Also joining us is Kaleeb Thompson. She's the co-founder and the board president of Island Space Caribbean Museum in Broward. Kaleeb, also a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Louis. Good to be with you again. Definitely. You know, let me just, I'm going to ask both of you, uh, because we talk about Pride Month in many different ways. We cover it in many different ways. But for you, uh, what does this mean? How do you define what this month means? G, I'll start with you. Okay, thank you so much. So I am a gender non-conforming lesbian of Jamaican descent. So Pride Month is celebrating me as, you know, a member of the LGBTQ community and also as a Caribbean member of the LGBTQ community and as a Caribbean American, because it's Pride Month and Caribbean American History Month. Khalib, what about you? And for me, I guess, as a as an ally um, coming from a country like Jamaica, where queer issues have never been openly discussed or welcomed, it is an opportunity for me to be supportive of a community that I've always been supportive of and just never um, never had the support of a broader community in being supportive. Does that make sense? Yeah, yes. No, definitely. Yes. And, and you yeah. know, Kaleeb, you just said something. I, I wondered, has anything changed back in, in, in your home country? I think so. It's not tremendous, but there is acceptance. There is this destigmatization that is happening. I'm not going to say that everyone is opening, you know, walking around with open arms, uh, but I think there has been There's a little been bit changes. of changes. Yeah, yeah, there's some more acceptance, mm. thankfully. You know, G, you you co-founded the uh, Thou Art Woman. And I just, if you could describe it for us, but what is the significance for you of focusing on women in this exhibit? So, um, so Dark Woman is founded by myself and Nick Harris, and we also founded the Black LGBTQ Liberation, a nonprofit. And that was, Dark Woman was actually founded back in 2014. And it was really to fill a void for within the LGBTQ community. Women in particular have struggled to find safe spaces to be ourselves. So it was really a space to center women, and we use the arts to celebrate women. So we have open mic events, performance events, and what we have right now in the city of Fort Lauderdale is an art exhibition that centers LGBTQ women and allies. And and the whole thing, the, the exhibit is called Thou Art Woman Liberation Art Exhibition. Yes. Uh, and again, it's in the Fort Lauderdale City Hall lobby through the end of June. And and also, as I mentioned, you have your organization, as you mentioned, Black LGBTQ Plus Liberation, Inc. Tell me a little bit about that. And, and I want to understand how liberation in this showcase, how you, how you showcase it for you personally, but also through this this work. So, um, so Black Liberation, LGBTQ Liberation Inc., which we're nicknaming Blink, it's a nonprofit founded by me and Nick Harris, and it's focusing on providing programming and services to achieve positive income uh, in outcomes, income too, right? But outcomes <laughs> for BIPOC, <laughs> BIPOC LGBTQ people. 
And so when we do the, the art exhibition, you know, we really give women an opportunity and allies of women. We do have someone who's non-binary in the, in the exhibition, um, a chance to, to express themselves creatively, you know, centering joy, um, you know, be, centering how we are valid and appreciated in the community. And just really a space for us that's, like I said, it's pretty rare to, for women to have that. Um, so that's just been really a form of liberation for us to share whatever we'd like to share. Is, is there a piece in, in the exhibit that really speaks to this mostly? Or that you just want to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> well, in the, for the Dar Woman uh, Liberation Exhibition, um, there is, I mean, so much amazing work in it. Um, there's a great piece by Naja Moon in there. Um, we have a artist, Sefra Michelle has some great work. And I am not a, 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 I don't consider myself a visual artist, but I did participate in a workshop at the Island Space Caribbean Museum last summer and selected to photograph a lesbian Haitian couple. And I was able to feature a photograph of, the, of that couple in the museum last summer. And it, it really moved me to include it in this show. So when you enter the, the city of Fort Lauderdale, you'll see a picture of a couple that, a lesbian couple that you don't really see in like, you know, public spaces so much. So that's something that I felt like we really want to have more visibility as, as queer women and as Caribbean women as well. Khalib, is there a piece that, that really stands out for you? That was the one, the one that she actually shot was my favorite piece because it's these two women, they're standing beside each other in a hallway with this beautiful just backlight coming from behind them. And my business partner is a photographer. So I'm looking at the, the way these two women are represented. It's, it's, it's not, um, it's just warm. There's a warmth about the image that just makes you feel comfortable looking at it. But as I was looking through the entirety of the exhibition, I'm looking at these very colorful, it's not the pride colors, but just these colorful bursting canvases. Um, there's, there's art, sorry, there's painting in there. There's, um, this, what is it? Gicle? I don't know. These, all, all these various textures and colors, uh, photographs, painting. It's it's just a really diverse group of images. So I'm going to go with G's image as my favorite. <laughs> you know, um, but there's a, there's a lot to look at in that, in I, that exhibition. I, I do want to add that it's, this show was curated by Carolyn McFarlane, who is a local artist who also has curated shows at ArtServe here in Fort Lauderdale. I, I wanted to get your take, both of you on this, is when you have people come in and see the work. Um, and I, I, you know, Sometimes you know, and sometimes you have to ask, but it, I wondered if the way uh, members of the LGBTQ plus community see the work compared to those who are not, what the differences are. <laughs> well, uh, well okay, I, Jean, I'm, queer, I'm, I'm queer and Khalib is not. So that's, a, I think, a good question for us to, to address. You know, for me, what I embrace is just the representation to as a queer woman to see queer women on the wall, or to see that queer women who are uh, artists have featured their work on the wall. You know, we have 10, 10 women in the show and one non-binary person. So for me to walk in and to think, when I think about, like I believe about 1,500 people walk into that city hall a month. So to think that people are organically gonna just see this work on the wall is something that means a lot to me, just feeling representation and being included in, in people's day-to-day -day life. Mm. And I'm gonna say that, you know, Looking at the, the images, I wouldn't just know that they're uh, it's a queer exhibition. It's just beautiful images on the wall. There's nothing overtly 
we're about them. Now, when you walk into the Caribbean Museum, which I'm sure you'll ask about in a minute, mm -hmm. it's, it's a little bit different. Uh, but this one at City Hall is just a beautiful collection of images. And oh, by the way, it's by it's by queer artists. Mm -hmm. uh, and let's talk about that at the Island Space Caribbean Museum in Broward. Right now you're hosting the Queer Caribbean's Resilience, Resistance and Reimagining Exhibition. Uh, tell me a little bit about the themes of, of liberation. Uh, you know, for for this exhibit, I'm gonna leave that to so, again. So, yeah. so for this exhibition, um, I want to start off with saying, for this is the first time that I've been in South Florida for 20 years now. Um, so, it's the first time that I have experienced, I talked about it in the opening, uh, a queer exhibition or experience in a mainstream uh, Caribbean space. So that was something that was very, you know, uh, moving for us and historical. Um, so that's something that is, um, I want to clarify that, right? You, you said that you've been in queer spaces with Caribbean queer events, right. but never in a Caribbean, Caribbean space. That's mainstream. Right. Right. So that's hosting a queer event. That hosting. And we had, Dollar Woman had an event there in December that we promoted and, and hosted there, but this was something that we, um, Blink and the Caribbean Museum collaborated to do this exhibition together. So that was something very different for us. And um, we looked at, re when we talk about reimagining, this is part of reimagining, like oftentimes we center, you know, that we're coming from a homophobic cultures and all the challenges. And this is something like we're talking about reimagining. And this is part of it to say, we're gonna celebrate queer Caribbean people in a space that people are gonna walk in from all different walks of life. And it's wonderful that we have Caribbean, that we have queer spaces, of course, but we also need to be in, you know, mainstream spaces as well. Mm. And and for us, I'm going to tell you, there were people and are people who are like, you can't do that. <laughs> you know? wow. That's not right. And, what, and, and we kind of have to just plug our fingers in our ears and say, no, we are us. Island Space as an organization, as a nonprofit is here to, um, you know, to just spread acceptance and communion and you know just just a warm family spirit with everyone and anyone and so i don't accept this you know our culture doesn't our culture doesn't support this therefore mm -hmm. we cannot and so it was um really it's, it's gratifying for me every time somebody says you can't do it because i'm like yeah we can and we yeah. did <laughs> yeah. you know but that's... this is really sorry doesn't say the power of allyship and how important it is because yeah. me as a queer person putting on something and saying hey everybody come it's very different from some folks who are allies to say, hey, we're supporting this community. This community is a part of our community right. and that we need to be acknowledged and celebrated as well. And that, I tell you what, that in of itself is this conversation we could have for hours. But it's, <laughs> it, that's, that is really fascinating. I just want to mention again, I'm talking with Kaleeb Thompson, the co-founder and board president of Island Space Caribbean Museum in Broward. Also, G. Wright Muir, she is the co-founder and board vice president of Black LGBTQ Plus Liberation Inc. Find out more about these two exhibits, by the way, as they're happening during this month, this Pride Month. It's on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Um, there's a series of videos that are part of the uh, exhibition. They feature uh, queer Caribbean people in the community. One of them is State Senator Chevron Jones, uh, the first openly gay senator in the state's history. He's of, of Bahamian descent, and he shared this personal story, powerful, addressing his fellow lawmaker colleagues. Let's take a listen. Most of you know my dad's a pastor down in uh, South Florida. Uh, the book that my dad wrote was inspired by the loss of my brother, 
But then as I continued to read the introduction of my dad's book for the first time, he just came out about three weeks ago. It was also speaking about his disappointment. It was my dad talking about his disappointment. After me, after taking 30 years of just wanting to make him, him and my mom proud and just coming out and saying who I am. And so when I see these kids, I don't think y'all understand how much courage it takes for these children to show up every day. Just imagine living your life for 30 years and you coming to your parents and, and you're talking about who you are and you're lying to them about who you are. I never wanted to disappoint my dad. And I even told him to watch this today. I don't think y'all understand that even rerunning for office, it was, it was difficult because people calling your names, people saying things to you. And all you want to do is serve. I never knew that living my truth would, uh, would cause church members to leave my dad's church. Or friends to stop talking to me. Or families to make jokes about who you are. And again, that is uh, Chevron Jones, State Senator Chevron Jones. And in that, he was speaking in regards to the state's parental rights and education law. It's dubbed by opponents as the don't say gay law. Gee, you hear that. I mean, how does that speak to you? Oh, that's heartbreaking. Um, yeah, I got emotional hearing it. I've heard it before, too. You know, it's really grateful to Senator Jones for participating in this exhibition, but really to share his truth in the way he did on the floor there in the legislature. Um, and just so important for for what he's doing to, to be living as loudly as he is. I've had some folks in the Caribbean community who said, I didn't know he was gay. And then some folks didn't know he was Caribbean. So for him to, you know, participate has been just really powerful. And, you know, that speaks to me. I had years, um, years of not being able to live my life. I was married to a man and have a beautiful family. We have two sons. and. You know, I have a very challenging journey to become myself as well. And that's a story that many, many people in this community have, you know, and so it does take a lot to to be able to to live our truth. You know, Kaliba yeah. goes back to I mean, she just said it. There are a lot of people who didn't know he was gay. But then, mm-hmm. you know, you talk about people who will come into the museum and, and they are saying, no, this this isn't part of us because they don't want to accept it yet. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, funnily, and and a pleasant surprise that we've had is that there are people who don't come into the museum, and I've heard that we're doing this and make the comments. The people who have come into the museum, by and large, just look and observe and read and look at the video and have a nice day and keep on walking. And it's been a joy to see the reception of people who actually do come in there. I think there are people who, in other circumstances, had they known 
known they were walking into a queer exhibition myself, <laughs> said, no, I'm not going in there. But they walk in and the way that it's presented is so benign. It's art on the walls. It's celebrating people and their culture and who they are, which is what we do. And they are welcoming of that. And I want to say regarding um, what Chevron Jones was talking about. I grew up as the tallest and the darkest and the heaviest child in my class at, you know, from I was in kindergarten one in Jamaica. And so there was always this kind of ridicule and you're too fat and you're too tall and you're too dark and, and, and being, you know, this thing of being who you are. I'm not a queer person, but this thing of being who you are and being ridiculed for things that you cannot change about yourself and being ashamed of who you are when I couldn't wake up and do anything about it, you mm. know, has always resonated with me. And I've always wanted to feel like I'm fighting on behalf of something and somebody and supporting somebody. Yeah, Gee. And so the, yeah, the opportunity to do that has been, has been great. Gee, I want to finish with you, your mother, you talked about your, your two sons. How do you hope like exhibits like these are going to help impact these conversations now and also moving forward in the future within this community, within the Caribbean community? I, I feel like people seeing seeing us is just so important because I really didn't see queer Caribbean people growing up and it does make a big difference. You know, people, it's easy to be homophobic when you don't know that your neighbor, or your niece or your child is gay. It's harder when you start to really see who around you is a part of the community and that we are, whether we're lawyers or, the, you know, teachers, whoever we are, aunts and uncles and mothers. So just to see us is so important and I, it does make a big difference to open hearts and minds to be more accepting um, of our community. And Lewis, if I can say before we wrap yes. up, I want to thank the Community Foundation of Broward and our fund. They've been very supportive of this project and others, as well as G is going to be on with Stacey Ann Chin, yes. our famous author and poet, on Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock. 7 o'clock uh, on the Island Space Facebook page with a live interview. Fantastic. And again, uh, great to have these, these exhibits again to just get people to talk. Just at least yes. to just take a moment take to, and, and see that there are stories out there and, and the experiences that we have. And these are our brothers and sisters. These are the people in our community. So thank you so, so much, both of you. I really appreciate you sharing this with us. Thank you. Thank Lewis. you so much for having us. It's great to be here. Thanks Definitely. for the support. And again, G. Wright Muir, she's the co-founder and board vice president of Black LGBTQ Plus Liberation Inc. And Khalid Thompson, the co-founder and board president of Island Space Caribbean Mu Museum in Broward. All the information about these exhibits, we've got that on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Well, that's our program for this Monday, June 13th, 2022. Coming up tomorrow on the show. Well, remember the whole fight over the Coconut Grove Playhouse and there was a lot of doubt and question as to it, its future. Maybe it was going to get knocked down. Well, it might not have new life. We're going to find out more coming up tomorrow. Also, a beloved film from 30 years ago. Remember Father of the Bride, Steve Martin, Martin Short? Remember that? Well, they have a, it was remade with a Cuban spin. And we're going to tell you all about it because the movie takes place here in Miami. All that coming up tomorrow on the show. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.